0: hello welcome to Footguns. It is Thursday, June 23rd. It's me, Wasabi and Hal, and today we are talking with Jordan stasny and Sam Bronstein who are former MNA people who have like uh I imagine many of our listeners uh been secretly dipping a toe into the uh degeneracy of the crypto world and are um now launching a Substack where they cover all things uh crypto MA. And this is a uh, I think uh this is probably going to be a lot more relevant as we enter this uh bear market. So excited to uh to talk about this and and kind of like what mental models we can take from TradFi if any to the uh to the world of crypto. So welcome and uh thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much for having us. Do you want to um start us out give a give a, give us a Substack so everyone stop what you're doing go immediately subscribe to the Substack and then uh and then tell us how like you made this transition from uh into crypto like what are the, the the backgrounds that you're bringing um from from crypto or sorry from from trad that will that will be uh useful when we get into like the the more m a phase of of what's going on now
1: yeah no happy happy to go into it so jordan and i in our previous careers were m a bankers at Uh, an investment bank called Catalyst, and there we worked on a bunch of technology M&A deals, buy side, sell side, public, private. And we saw a really interesting opportunity in crypto to take that high quality strategic advisory around M&A and apply it to the crypto industry. And thus far, M&A in the crypto space has been fairly limited, Um, and has been more driven by centralized exchanges consolidating and doing acquisitions for digital custody. But over the last six months, there's been a bit of an acceleration in terms of what we like to think of as sort of more bleeding edge crypto deals, Uniswap buying Genie, OpenSea buying Gem. So first and foremost, that was our original thesis for jumping into the space was to provide that high-quality and advisory that companies outside of crypto have been able to leverage um, you know, for, for a while now. The sort of second opportunity that we see in the space is applying some of the financial best practices around fp So budgeting, forecasting, preparing financial statements, and working with crypto-native organizations, specifically DAOs, to put those best practices in place. Um, and both of those endeavors leverage you know our, our, our career in investment banking. So really two opportunities in crypto we saw M; advisory and FPNA consulting. And Jordan, you should obviously
2: jump into and give your background. Yeah, so I can, I can be quick here. Um, so I, I started my career at Citigroup um, in kind of the general investment banking practice. So I was focused a little bit more on capital markets, um, did some debt raises, worked on a couple IPOs, and then uh, joined SAM at Catalyst probably four years ago now. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's fo- focused entirely on buy-side, sell-side and there. And, and uh, Sam and I both kind of caught the crypto bug at about the same time and decided to try and uh, see, see what we could make of it.
0: So I guess the first question I have is when a company... TradFi buys another company, there are two legal entities and their shares, and there's a purchase agreement that you are paying a certain amount of shares um, uh, or cash or whatever, and there's an earnout. So, like, and then the, you know, one legal entity acquires the other. What is, what does it look like in this world of like DeFi and DAOs where you have, you know, maybe you might have a bunch of code bases, you might have one token or two tokens that may or may not be considered equity of of an, a legal entity but so w- what is a DeFi merger like like based on you know what the examples that we've seen or, or what what is it and how is it different than a business you know corporate entity merger
2: yeah so i mean i think there are a lot of similarities um to your point obviously tokens aren't necessarily uh, equity interests or at least they, they aren't supposed to be and and so in from from that perspective it is a little different i think if you look at like um the ferrari merger is an example i think it that that was treated very very similarly um you had two tokens that were trading publicly um they obviously had a a a market value and and because of that they came up with a an exchange ratio similar to what you would do as shares and uh and and one one token the tribe token uh, acquired the other the the rgt token and that was that was it so there there's a lot of similarities i think as it regards um you know the the entity piece of it um i think that that kind of remains to be seen um i think if you look at um a lot of these um a lot of these protocols they have they have kind of offshoot labs entities so you look at like the uniswap Genie deal as an example um that was a deal not done by by the protocol but actually done by the by the off-chain entity so i think we're, we're still in very much the early stages but i think as it regards like the pricing and and the process there's there's going to be a lot of similarities i think in terms of like some of the nitty-gritty structural details um that's probably will kind of sort itself out as, as you know, precedents start to get made.
1: Yeah, and there's really only been when you look at the MA that's happened in the space, um, there's really only been a couple of meaningful, truly decentralized MA deals, which are XDinosis and uh Ferrari. All of the other transactions in and around DeFi have been structured basically exactly like Web two deals would be structured, you know, two centralized entities entering into a purchase agreement. And it just so happens to be that the products that they build are related to DeFi or crypto. But in terms of decentralized MA that's happened, um, it's
0: it's been very limited. All right. So let's let's get into kind of like the the nitty-gritty. I mean, when I when I look at protocols that have merged, I kind of think of them more as like deals that have come together based on some kind of synergy or like with ferrari they said hey you're doing a stable coin we're doing a you know bar lend protocol it makes sense to, to have have these put together just as kind of like a strategic um a strategic acquisition like filling a gap that they realized needs to be filled in the other so why not join forces but like do you do you see it more of this sort of like strategic Protocol A and Protocol B deciding to come together, or is it really like, you know, I think your token is worth a dollar and it's trading at fifty cents, so we might as well like make that arbitrage and and try to capture that value on like an actual e- economic dollars and cents valuation of a token.
2: Yeah, um, it's a good question. I think it depends a lot on who the acquirer is um, in in traditional markets. The, what you, what you see is. Um, you can have two different types of acquirers. You have strategic acquirers, and so that's like you know Google and Facebook and Salesforce. And you have um, private equity or institutional buyers. So That's like Vista Partners, Tumba Bravo, um, Silver Lake, folks like that. And so I, I think that when you when you think about who's trying to just simply capture value for the sake of value, that is usually institutional buyers. Um, and there are haven't actually, hasn't actually been a lot of that in crypto to date. I imagine there there will be, particularly in this market, um, down the road. But I I, I think. Prime, first and foremost, if you're thinking about one protocol acquiring another, one community merging with another, um, there has to be strategic value and has to has to be a, a joint vision. Um, if you're acquiring simply for for value, I think there's a uh, you know you you, you there, and there's not like a cohesive vision where, where things actually make sense down the road together. You don't actually have synergy that are there isn't the a ver- vertical integration play or or a horizontal con- consolidation play. Um, I, I have to imagine that you'd start to see the kind of community splinter, and you end up actually losing the value that you thought you were gaining simply by by acquiring. So that's those are those are kind of my two cents, Sam. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, I, I agree with everything you said.
0: Here's here's a global question I have for you, and something I've I've thought about and heard other kind of VCs debating, and and uh, and uh, be curious to get your take. When you look at the big categories in DeFi, you have DEXs, you have borrow, lend, uh, like Aave, you have stable coins, collateralized, partially collateralized, uncollateralized, and then you have kind of like yield aggregators like like uh, Urine Badger. What? And then, and then you have like the whole like layer one protocols. Um, of Of those, do you have any sense over what, which of these categories is likely to capture the most economic value over time? Like if you were to think about it like a business that's actually going to be profitable in the long run, like which which of these verticals is the best, has the best uh, kind of economics?
1: Yeah, I mean, you could go in a lot of different directions with that question. I think you look at where the economics sit today and clearly, you know, the leader in the DeFi space is um, Uniswap with their decks. So I think you could look at that data point and you could get confidence that, you know, the business model is... Um, you know, less risky than some of the borrowing and lending protocols. And they're already generating, you know, real revenue. I think last time I checked, Uniswap was generating about $5 million a day in fee revenue, which is actually more than is generated per day on the Ethereum blockchain. So I think that that is sort of one place that I would start. My suspicion is that as we go through this bear market, Right now, there are so many different protocols in DeFi across you know, DEXs and aggregators and lenders and borrowers and stablecoins. A lot of these projects aren't going to survive. I think that what you'll see is when we emerge from this cycle into the next bull cycle, that a lot of the DeFi projects that exist right now might not exist in the future. And I think that that is something that um, is driving our thesis around an increase in MA. You have the leaders in the space like the Uniswaps and the Aves and the Makers, and they're going to be looking at this time as a period in which they can consolidate their position of strength, while some of the other projects that have tokens that are trading at, relatively speaking, depressed values, might be looking for homes. And I think that the strategic rationale for technological integration needs to exist. But there's also the rationale for acquiring human capital. And the race for engineers in this space is so competitive that we think that these leading defi protocols can look at MA as a way to acquire high quality talent and maybe a metric that you can uh, use to assess valuation and acquisition isn't necessarily just you know token price or you know a multiple on revenue or profitability but a price tag per head on engineers that you're bringing over from the other community so um
2: those are sort of sort of some of my thoughts on that yeah i think just just quickly to just quickly to layer onto that i think when, when you think about where value is going to be in the space i think i think sam makes an interesting point about the uniswap fees um that that said i think one one really key piece here is to think about what type of moats are being created at this stage so like when you think about layer ones um like i that obviously like to become the preferred layer one uh you know, blockchain that people are building on in the future. That's a that's a pretty powerful and impressive mode. I think when you think about stable coins, I think this is why you saw so many people pour, pour so much money uh, into Terra to try and take that market share because that's to, to become the, the, you know, the preferred decentralized stable coin currency of the internet. Um, that's a pretty big moat. And so I, I think there are a lot of places where you can find value today, but I think thinking about it that way is, is where you might see people pour, you know, particularly in this market pour a lot of money. And then to Sam's point, Start actually thinking about other more aggressive, um, you know, a- acquisitory strategies to try and con- not just consolidate their market, but c- cement that leadership in a way that is, you know, unassailable moving forward. So I'm 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 curious.
3: Um, I don't know quite how to phrase this. I've really enjoyed uh, everything you guys have been sharing so far. Um, the one thing that that made me think was when you're talking about okay, well, Uniswap is generating these fees, right? Well, uh, you know, just to be clear to you know people listening when uniswap generates fees those fees go to the liquidity providers meaning you know if you yeah, take um, bitcoin and ethereum you provide it for liquidity on uniswap you are earning 100% of those fees proportional to how much liquidity you're providing where um, for instance there's protocols like sushi swap or curve where those fees are being distributed to the token holders so that starts to look more like an equity right where um, you hold the token and you're getting some sort of payback from the total ecosystem. So I'm curious. Um, you sort of hinted at it a bit when you were talking about um, the human capital that's involved and in that and that sort of thing. But what are are you guys trying to create a valuation model for governance tokens, for instance? With Uniswap, the only reason to hold the Uni token is so that you can vote on the uni ecosystem. Yeah, in my mind, the uni ecosystem is kind of boring in the sense that all the liquidity providers are are earning all the fees and all you can do with the token is is I mean I guess you know I guess if you acquired enough uni token you could change that and say, oh well now fifty percent of the fees go to the to the uni holder. So um yeah are you are you trying to value like what governance means basically is, is the question I'm asking.
1: Yeah no I mean it's it, it's a phenomenal question and you know when we think through what what are some of the most important topics and questions in defi the potential turning on of the uniswap fee switch is is at the top of the list and they've built into the uniswap protocol a mechanism for turning on a fee switch to deliver that revenue to the uni token holders. It hasn't been turned on. And if it does get turned on, it would be voted on by the community. Exactly what you're talking about in terms of preparing evaluation reports and helping communities think through the financial implications of these decisions is the exact type of project that you know, we plan to work on in the space. And we take the perspective that these questions around monetization and revenue generation they can only be answered when you have a financial framework to assess these decisions so you know when the community votes on turning on a potential fee switch for uniswap that decision needs to be contextualized against a broader financial model that lays out OK, what could that revenue be based on a variety of different scenarios around token prices, percent of uh, revenue being distributed back to uni holders? How does that impact the TVL that sits on the Uniswap protocol if less of the revenue is actually going directly to liquidity providers? Um and it's, it's a fascinating question and it, you know, it, it will get answered at some point in the, you know, not too distant future.
2: Yeah. I think just to, just a layer on that. I mean, I think that the reality is people buy governance like like go- governance simply for the sake of governance without some sort of value accrual um, is, I don't want to say it's worth nothing because that's not true, but it's, but it's, it's not worth a lot. It's not worth the type of return that candidly like venture investors and I would say most rec, most retail investors are expecting when they buy a token. So like I think making sure that you are making decisions, and this is an MA and or and, and or any other kind of strategic decision making, whether whether you're buying back your buying back your token, whether you're making a big operational strategic decision like Sam's talking about uh, with, with Uniswap or, or, or what have you, the 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 fact of the matter is like token holders are going to care most about what type of decisions are we making and how are they going to affect the price of our token how they can affect the value of our protocol the aggregate value of all of our tokens and so like from our perspective that's that's the right way to think about it and to make to make decisions and so that that's that's when we, when we think about like why you know we're spending some time right now in the absence of like tons and tons of m a focused on helping you know helping companies think about building financial models and helping companies help companies helping protocols helping protocols and communities think about getting a handle on their finances and, and strategically model out their 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 business because that's what that's what these are Um, that's, uh, that, that's the reason. And so, so you can make decisions in a way that is informed, that actually drives value. Yeah. And, and I think one, one
1: last point to layer on there, I think one of the biggest pieces of complexity here is actually not related to the financial impact of, you know, turning on a fee switch for Uniswap, for example, but it is the implications from a regulation and a security standpoint, because the, you know, you turn on a fee switch and now revenues are accruing to the uni token holders, that may now, under the Howey test, be considered a security. And Uniswap, particularly being how large it is, is sort of at the, you know, I would suspect the top end of sort of what the SEC is looking at when they think through some of this regulation. So there's sort of that additional level of complexity while the regulatory environment is still pretty ambiguous that is impacting the
0: ability to make um these important decisions yeah so i think okay let's spend a little more time on the uniswap because i i think about this a lot so number one regulatory i think that's that's a huge issue and especially you know they're not an on team by any stretch of the imagination and based in the u.s and all that so that's one thing the second thing is like hal mentioned okay uh if, if a fee switch were turned on, that's going to come out of the pockets of the liquidity providers. And um, we just did our previous episode with a guy about how to LP on Uniswap. And doing that correctly in their V3 is not easy. It's extremely quantitative. You can get wrecked very easily by market moving against you in one, one direction or the other. And um, it's there have been a lot of analysis published that, that suggest that most or many or half or, you know, a non-trivial amount of the LPs there are losing money. So if you were to to switch on a fee that's taking a cut from the LP, um, it could dampen their, you know, the, the incentive to, to provide assets to that, which could reduce the amount of liquidity and reduce the value proposition of of the DEX. And then you have something like, um, xsushi i wonder if you guys have done any work on that because like i was a holder of sushi swap for a long time and a big believer in xsushi because i said you know all right this is like this is the the gold standard right like you're actually getting as a token holder some kind of economic reward and i i think uh i don't I don't have the numbers in front of me but like you know you would get a, a cut of the transaction fees going to xsushi holders so um, but like that has not really done any good for it for the sushi token like it's down just as much as, as i believe Emo it token. was 50
3: yeah
0: so um i don't know how, how do you how do you look at that how do you look at the, the game theory there around the like the kind of analysis over whether they should uh flip this switch
2: yeah i mean i can i can take this i think that my i mean my, my perspective is well, a you need to look at a lot of different pathways right there there there, there is a world in which you're taking a cut from the LPs, there's a world in which you're layering a cut on top. I think that there's, um, there's a couple of uh, other ways to potentially monetize that that, that don't necessarily uh, equate to taking fees out of LPs pockets. So I think that's, that's one, I think two, um, Like, hap- like being able to actually evaluate the merit of, of all those different directions, like you, it's, it's, it's actually why the kind of modeling out and strategic decision-making is so important because you need to think through um, what are my options? What is the opportunity cost of each of these options? Let's, let's start to think about some downsides and some upsides. Um, I think that you can, you know, if, if you you could have a really great, I, I'm not terribly, terribly familiar with X issue, so I don't want to speak specifically to that, but I think just in general, you can have really, really great um, economics and theory from a, from a revenue sharing perspective. But if you have poor marketing or a bad business model for LPs or really poor and dilutionary t- tokenomic practices... Um, you can end up blowing a lot of value. So I think it's, it, there's a lot of different pieces here. I think this is part of why crypto is so interesting um, is when you think, look at all these DeFi protocols, they, you know, majority of companies, the traditional companies have one kind of classic share, share structure. In this case, there are there are so many. There's so many different ways to think about and build out your token and to start, try and build value. Um, but like to do so haphazardly, kind of just directionally, I think is, is um, pretty foolish. I think it's, you need to do so in a way that is... Um, you know, more strategic, more quantitative, and, uh, and really weigh your options and do so um, focused on fundamentals and financial valuation building. Yeah, no, and, and just to layer on that, I mean, just
1: to take Uniswap as an example, let's just take two sort of simple scenarios, right? On one scenario, you take a percent of the fee pool and you allocate that to uni token holders so it's not incremental you're just sort of decreasing the existing fees that go to liquidity providers well okay well now there is less of an incentive for liquidity providers to stake their tokens on uh, on uniswap less liquidity less volume and you know potentially less revenue now if you take the other side of the equation and you, don't change the percent of fees that go to the liquidity providers but instead you layer on an incremental fee that goes to the uniswap token the uni token holders then there's less of an incentive for people to transact on the uniswap platform because they're now paying higher fees and you know there may be less volume as a result so the analysis that you would want to do is looking at how much of a, it's sort of like a break-even analysis, right? It's like whether you're looking at an incremental fee or just taking a fee from the existing percent and thinking about how that would impact the volume of transactions on the platform and then looking at the take rate based on the fee switch you turned on. And you would just want to basically look at a few different scenarios and
0: um, try to come to an informed decision. All right, so let me let me ask you this, and I've gotten this question from a lot of people and, and investor friends who have like a tradfi background, and it's kind of I'm sure it's it's a box of worms, and we've touched on some of these uh, some of these aspects, but like when someone at a you know cocktail party asks you, how do you value a DeFi protocol? Like, what what is the framework you use? Can you kind of walk through the like in a step by step way how you would approach something like that? Sure. I can take this. Um, so I think there's there's two,
2: I mean, obviously this is not going to, this is this is kind of valuation basics 101. So this isn't going to be shocking to anybody that's worked in valuation in Trad5. But um, there are two basic ways when you're trying to kind of start from scratch and try and value something. You can look at relative valuation. So that's where you're looking at like comps and multiples, looking at like precedent transactions and other things like that. Um, and then there's intrinsic valuation, which is obviously a, um, a theoretically better way to value things, but is, it obviously comes at, <laughs> it's a lot more, a lot more assumption-heavy, but I think the, the the main key is you're 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 basically trying to determine the, the proper proper sides, um, the proper numerator and the proper denominator in a, in a simple division equation, which is just what is the aggregate value of all of the tokens, or or in 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 the in the traditional finance sense, you'd think the aggregate value of equity, and uh, and then thinking through, okay, well during my hold period or during you know whatever at the moment of my transaction or whatever whatever it is that you're trying to value. Um what are the number of tokens like what how, basically how is all that value being distributed to all the people that have claim to it um, or the- theoretically at least and those would be all the token holders and so from that perspective um, y- you can you can take it a number of different ways but like the 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 key is to to, to think through primarily cash flow and I think that's where um, i think this is true in tech just broadly speaking and I think this is gonna this is gonna be you're gonna see the shift during this bear market or this you know theoretical bear market but um, I, this is a particularly true in crypto, which is that people get very enamored with growth, they get enamored with TVL, they get enamored with users, um, and, just, and just enamored with shiny things in general. But the, the key driver of value is always is always cash. And if it's not cash today, then it's the ability to generate cash tomorrow. Um, and so from, from my perspective, that's going to be what is driving valuations moving forward. And that's how I think about it primarily is like, okay... Um, what is this, what is this business model? You look at, again, you could go keep going back to Uniswap, but like Uniswap isn't generating anything now, uh, for itself, but it does have the ability to, and it does get a lot of eyeballs. And so that's how I would think about it. It's like, okay, what's realistically, um, if we were to flip the fee switch, what, what would that mean for the protocol as a whole? Um, and then who, who are all the, all the tokens that are going to be outstanding at that time after, you know, everybody vests and after, you know, the emission rewards have, have gone out and what have you, um, you know, minus anything that's just sitting in the treasury and and then thinking through like okay then what is what does that mean for an individual token what what does an individual token have theoretical claim to um, and i know that's not like that that claim isn't explicit because if it is explicit then then we, we run into how we test and security issues but there's definitely an implicit claim to it because you're governing it and because again you wouldn't have investors putting millions and millions of dollars into these things if they didn't believe there was an implicit claim uh, to future cash flow so from my perspective those are those are the two kind of basic ways you think through trading Trading metrics and and, and comparable relative valuations, um, which I think is tough in crypto for a lot of reasons. And so, primarily, it's you know I think you're going to see a lot of people more focused on on cash. Um, And again, not necessarily cash today, but but the ability to generate cash tomorrow. So, okay,
3: yeah, okay. I'm I'm just trying to I'm trying to bring some harder questions to you guys because you're just answering these so well. So. What what are your discounting mechanisms? So um for instance, what you know <laughs> that's not what, was, was Wasabi already brought up sushi, right? So like the you know, I I wrote an article a while ago in Foot Guns, um something about like vampires or something. Uh, but yeah, su- sushi emerged from a vampire attack on Uniswap, and it was a bit of a a freakout moment. I know these were early days. Um but, you know, there's billions of dollars of liquidity that that left Uniswap overnight and ran over to Sushi um, because of better tokenomics. So, yeah. Do you guys think about like discounting sort of events like that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's just a general discount. Um, I, I think you, I, I would say that when it comes to like the uh, a couple of things. I think this is why being really thoughtful about your token economics and your governance structure is, is really key. Um, like you can have the most thoughtful, um, you know, the most, the most thoughtful valuation gen, like value generative plan. But if, you know, if, if there's an exploit that can be taken, uh, taken advantage of, and there's going to potentially be like an outflow of value from that perspective, um, it doesn't really matter. I think like an example of this is like, the again, like to go back to the Fay Rari piece, um, like. They, you could, you could, you I would, I would argue that Faye got a fantastic deal on that, on that deal initially, but like lo and behold, there was not nearly the amount of diligence done, and there you go, there's a security exploit, and, and ended up being a really bad deal for that exact reason. So from from that perp- from from that piece of, uh, I think you should need to do your diligence as it regards that. I think when when you're thinking about just general discounting, um, at the moment, I don't know that I have like a fantastic framework for it, other than I generally discount when I'm thinking about discounting cash flows, like way more heavily. I mean, you just, you simply need to, um, you know, you're you're upping the level of risk. And I would say that your, uh, your opportunity cost is much, much higher in crypto. So from that perspective, um, you know, a discount rate that I would use in like a public equity is going to be like 10% and crypto, it's going to be probably closer to 40%. I um, just pulled that number out of nowhere, but that's, that's uh, kind of broad. No, I, I'm thinking about I, it.
3: I mean that makes sense to me. Uh, when I used to work in the physics world, we would just multiply everything by two, you know. So uh, if you think uh, if you think a physics detector can survive radiation for ten years, then uh, just say it can survive for five, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say in crypto, probably going to multiply by like three or four. But yeah. Well, I I I
1: think the point on the on the vampire attack is really interesting because I think if you look at you know let's just look at Facebook for example, right? The IP. The 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 platform that that Facebook built it's it's not forkable. Someone can't just fork the Facebook code. So there that's sort of one moat that DeFi uh, projects do not have because of the open source nature of it. I think the second piece of it that is also scary for thinking about you know investing in a DeFi token is that users of the protocols are very fickle. And they are going to chase yield. They're going to go where there is a combination of high yield with hopefully they're looking at, you know, the not getting rugged, looking at the security of the protocol. If I wanted to leave Instagram, I wanted to leave Facebook, it, it wouldn't be just chasing yield. I would want to go to a platform that my friends are on as well. And obviously building up a social media platform with a ton of users on it is is really hard. But if, you know, a DeFi project forks and, you know, someone's offering better yield, you know, TVL can crater and the price of the token would crater too. So there is definitely this sort of flash crash existential risk with DeFi tokens that um, that's very real. And to your point, you know, I think investors should be looking to achieve a very high return to be compensated for that risk.
0: When you, when you look out at DeFi today, is there a merger that jumps off the page as like, this is going to be the most accretive merger. This is like a no brainer. Like when I listen to kind of like my Silicon Valley VC tech bro podcast, they're always saying, Oh, Apple needs to buy Tesla or whatever. You know, this is kind of like a no brainer. Like do either of you have a, kind of like a merger that needs to happen. Yeah, I mean I I I it's it's a great
1: question and and I think it sort of requires two answers because I think that the the DeFi M&A that occurs between centralized entities, i.e. Uniswap Labs acquiring Genie. There are a lot of different permutations for strategic rationale for where Uniswap labs could buy, right? They can buy all of these different auxiliary products that they can layer on top of the Uniswap interface, you know, building different, um, you know, developer developer tools and price dashboards and things like that. So I think that there are, are a lot of different permutations of centralized m within DeFi. When you look at truly decentralized m and you look for where there could be um, strategic fit um, for a transaction. I think that the options are actually a lot more limited. I think that one of the most logical rationales for an acquisition in DeFi today is something like Ave, looking to expand into a non-EVM compatible, to a non-EVM chain like a Solana. So do they buy a lend? Do they buy a Port Finance, which are two borrow-lend protocols on Solana? That, to me, is a logical reason for a decentralized protocol to do m um, a But I do think that in a truly decentralized sense, the options are more limited and are more kind of a hardcore tech integration play.
0: So something where you have a brand that you've established on one chain and you're trying to bring that brand to a completely new tech stack and you would be acquiring in order, like you mentioned earlier, to get engineers that you need that are these unicorn, hard to find people and the team that's already in place on this other blockchain. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's another strong rationale. Yeah. What about... I, I think that's right. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. If you have uh, more thoughts on that topic.
2: Yeah. And I was just going to give, it's just kind of a general thought. I think one, one, just as we've been talking about kind of the, the, the forking piece of this, I think that's, that's something that I think is a pretty big misnomer um, about DeFi m in general. I think there's, there's always this kind of like, well, you know, why, why wouldn't you just fork the code? Why would you go buy the protocol? And like, okay, fine. I suppose you could do that. But I do think that there is like, it, it's not when you look at like software companies or, or, or different apps, it's not like somebody like looks at an app, um, you know, like, like Grubhub or what have you and says, like, oh, my God, I could never build that. It's like, no, you, you definitely could. But like, having the engineers alongside that, that have actually like put in real sweat equity to build that thing, um, that actually have all the institutional knowledge of how to manage and run it and then have, you know, a, a, a team kind of side by side with you that is kind of rolling in the same direction, but has that specific piece of expertise, I think is incredibly valuable. So I think like, that's I just wanted to make that point, because I do think that that's a a pretty big misconception about M&A in DeFi, um, in my opinion, is that like, it, it isn't just as simple as forking. There's so many other things that you get rather than simply IP when you when you buy an entity.
3: I, I do think that uh, another important point is that like, we just we're moving forward and we're learning, right? So, um, some of these, you know, so like, for instance, like the sushi attack on, on Uniswap, like you couldn't just do that again, right? You would, you know, cause everyone would be like, okay, well, we all saw how this played out. We understand how this played out. Right. So the lessons like have been learned. So the, I mean, you're really, you're really, what you're trying to discount is, um, unknown knowns, right? Am I, am I saying that right? Like things that, things that could could happen that you don't quite know about right because the odds of something that have that has already happened in defi repeating itself is it, it, it's, is getting lower right i mean obviously um over the last year there were several protocols that got hacked like you know a million different different times in the exact same way so yeah i mean you know um that the, these are the things we're learning right it's like Obviously, um, don't you know cr- cross collateralize assets on a lending protocol unless you whitelist them, you know th- things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that we're not we're not out of it. These lessons are going to be learned again. But no, I don't think that you're going to see the exact same um, sort of things happen again. So you can sort of write those off as like, okay, well Uniswap is not going to get attacked in the exact same way as it as it did with Sushi Swap, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true of MA as well. I think you've, you've seen in the in to the the limited uh you know decentralized MA um transactions that we've seen to date, there have been some pretty big mistakes made. Um and on the one hand as like kind of you know <laughs> as 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 crypto MA advisors, I know Sam and I talk about it and we we, we are like oh shit, like this is <laughs> this is this is not setting a good precedent. People are going to be looking at this and thinking it's a bad idea. Um, but on the other hand, I do think it helps it does help highlight how how valuable it is to you know to to really be thoughtful when you are doing it to not make those same mistakes to your point um, to not just and you know, and and
3: just one more point too you made me realize for the first time ever because um, you know we sort of like have have made these vampire forking attacks like um, sort of like a Web three crypto thing but. I mean, you know, uh, the story around Facebook, right? I mean, it was basically like a vampire attack on MySpace, right? So, I don't know. I, th- I think it's just like a, a software thing more than than a <laughs> sure. crypto
2: thing. What, what about Insta- In- Instagram stories on Snapchat? Like that's a it, it yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. I'm yeah. Curious what what you think about? I, I've heard people kind of ex- express the opinion that it's inevitable that there's going to be more vertical integration in crypto so like that that it's logical that a DEX is also going to want to own a lending platform and it's also going to want to issue its own stablecoin, and maybe even have like its own bridge and that they're going to be these kind of like vertically integrated mega protocols that do all of the main primitives of DeFi rolled up into one and they're going to have this kind of like brand equity like uniswap bridge uniswap lend uniswap dex do you do you see that as happening or is it i don't know what what do you think about the overall kind of like market dynamics around something like that
1: yeah i mean I, i i think we will definitely see that happen the 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 question is sort of more around timeline but i think something that's instructive to think about is looking at the sort of story of, of, of Web2, because, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think that that remains true here. So you look at the, you know, the sort of start out as a feature, become a product, become a platform. And you look at Salesforce, for example, and they started out um, as, you know, a simple CRM management tool. And then, you know, lo and behold, they go and acquire uh, tableau and now they've built you know a data and analytics platform on top of um, their existing CRM suite and then they acquired slack to build you know a messaging platform uh, to sort of act as a central nervous system um, for work and that trend will certainly repeat itself in crypto and you can even look at you know uniswap going in, buying genie and that in and of itself is a form of vertical integration because you know not only is uniswap you know right now the defi you know the amm leader in uh fungible tokens but now they're looking to vertically integrate into non-fungible tokens so there have definitely been early signs of vertical integration within defi but I think that given the strategic rationale and the integration of a vertically oriented transaction is a little bit more challenging because inherently you're sort of straying further from your core. Uh, Horizontal consolidation will probably happen earlier and sooner because it's easier. But over time, I am very, very confident that we will see vertical integration in the space as well.
0: Cool, maybe we can turn now to, to some of your work specifically in crypto MA. so how are you looking to kind of like operationalize these these uh, insights that you have? Are you kind of lurking on the forums and waiting for a good time to kind of like spring into action and and uh, do commentary and and get your get get a foothold that way? or you have a company or how, how like what's the best way to kind of an entry point for you as advisors in the space? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question, and um,
1: it's it's really interesting because when we look at what we did at Catalyst for years, the go-to-market motion was was pretty simple, right? You spend time with investors, you spend time with entrepreneurs, and you know you develop that trusted relationship with them. And when they're considering doing M and A, whether on the sell side or the buy side, you know you'd hope that they call you. And I think that a lot of those principles still apply, right? Like we're spending time with crypto native investors in the community, spending time with builders in the community. So leveraging that, where I think that crypto is different and and why I actually think it's a lot more interesting is there's a much more multi-dimensional approach to um, business development in this space. So we've spent a lot of time building up our content base and putting out writings on our sub stack around m&a and valuation and um, a lot of the you know the entire crypto world lives online so they're on twitter they're in discords they're in forums they're reading sub so we've made a very concerted effort to spend a lot of our time that otherwise in a web 2 context would have been in meetings and on phone calls instead we've been getting involved in Uh, Discords and governance forums and writing content and the sort of second piece of it is that you know we're looking to be you know the 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 go to crypto native M and A advisors in the space. So you know I was talking about this earlier, but there's been M and A in crypto that's been you know centralized exchanges buying digital custody providers and consolidation there, and those are transactions that are they're crypto, but they're not at the bleeding edge, and they're, you know, banked by, you know, a whole host of traditional investment banks. We want to go and spend time with the leading protocols in the space, so the Uniswaps, the Aves, the the makers, and really work with them on professionalizing their financial operation and taking that sort of multidimensional approach, doing crypto-native FP&A consulting work in conjunction with some of the more typical M and A advisory work that you would see in Web two, and our thesis is that when M and A in the space picks up, when you look at the experience that we have at Catalyst advising, you know, we advise on the sale of Slack and LinkedIn and Qualtrics and Mailchimp and all these big M and A deals. So we have this M and A experience that's you know pretty, uh, you know, pretty unique. And then you combine that with some of the consulting work that we're doing with these crypto-native organizations. Um, we we think it puts us in a pretty differentiated perspective to advise on M and A once it it meaningfully accelerates.
3: That that's awesome. I um I, you know so we, we talked about it a bit earlier, but you know, Footguns listeners uh, on the Substack, I have recommended uh, your guys' Substack. Um, you know, just. Tell everybody, I have been reading the articles you guys have been posting and really enjoying them. Um, I don't really like a lot of the crypto people that post things, so you know, I think that's a pretty big deal. High um, price. Okay, i i uh, I asked um, i asked our Discord uh, premium subscribers if they have any questions for you guys, and um, I'll I'll go ahead and um, start with uh, this one. Are you guys bankers?
1: We don't we don't really like the term bankers because it has a negative transactional connotation to it, right? You know, people hear bank and a and a pretty pretty earned one, I would say. And a pretty, and a pretty earned one. So we like to think about ourselves as like crypto native strategic and financial advisors. And our objectives in the space are to build up you know, a, a, a position of thought leadership and a position of r- really trust within important people in the community. Like when you're considering selling your company, that is the most, maybe the most important decision in the life cycle of a company. And the last thing that you want to do is hire an, a banker who you think is just going to do whatever it takes to get you to sell the company. And one of the things that we loved working at Catalyst, right? The advisors at Catalyst, you know, have decades and decades of experience. They don't need to, you know, sell a company to, to you know, or earn a living. And they, the amount of times I was on calls with, you know, the senior advisors at Catalyst and they told the investors or the CEO of the company not to sell. This isn't the right time um it 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 was really really refreshing and we want to take that same approach um to our business to where people really really trust us and um
2: you know view
1: us as as, as
2: trusted advisors yeah i think just to just to quickly layer onto that um i obviously i started my career at a bolt's bracket bank i won't i won't name it because i don't want to slander it but um bulge bracket for people that don't know it's just a large a large bank um it's the the morgan stanley's and the city groups of the world those banks and like I, I worked with bankers, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think the difference when we, when I moved over to Catalyst and spent my time there is like they really were advisors, and I do think there's a big difference, and I think that, um, just having kind of learned from them and spent as much time as we did there, which, which was a very long time between the two of us, um, uh, yeah, we view ourselves as advisors, we don't view ourselves as bankers for that very reason.
3: Awesome. Uh, we won't promote the bankless podcast uh, on here, but um, okay. So our, our intern is um, pretty clever. I really happy that we, we found him and got him on here. And um, one of our, one of our premium subs said, ask them what kinds of trades they feel most comfortable doing and their take on Delta neutral trades in crypto. And then our intern said, M A people probably don't know much about delta neutral stats. Uh, sorry, delta neutral strats. So, do you guys know anything about delta neutral strats in crypto?
1: I think your intern's pretty smart because yeah. I would say <laughs> my, my perspective on on delta neutral, given the last month of activity in in crypto, is that there needs to be more of it because there clearly hasn't been a very good job of employing those strategies. I think that. When we think about investing in tokens, and this kind of comes back to what we were chatting about earlier, I think that there are sort of two key things that, as an investor, I would think about. I would think about, one, what sort of cash flow, like Jordan said, is associated with the token? Because that's real value. That's not sort of fugazi, you know, retail fluff. This is why the price is high, which can, of course, evaporate at any minute. The second piece I would look at it, I would look at is what assets does the token have claim to and what sort of downside protection does that provide um, to the token price? So an example of this would be ApeDAO, where you know they were the largest holder of board Ape NFTs, and you could look at the token price and you could look at the implied value of their board ape holdings based on the floor. And you could say, okay, well, there's actually value here that's underlying the token. And lo and behold, the token was trading at a discount to the implied net asset value of the Dow based on the floor price of the NFTs. And the community voted to liquidate the NFT holdings and pay out the ether pro rata to the token holders. So those are two pieces of the puzzle as an investor in tokens i would be looking at cash flow and net asset value
3: oh i think you might have answered uh, one of our other questions which was will they know much about shitty jpegs
1: <laughs> you know i actually think um what, what, what i actually the more and more time i have spent in the nft space the more time i've sort of had this like bifurcated view on it. I think that on one hand there is a long tail of garbage where you have people who are just launching NFTs to make a quick dollar and those have a very very high likelihood of going to zero. On the other hand, you have communities that have been built up around NFT collections like Bored Apes and CryptoPunks and um you know even you know things like Moonbirds and Azukis and you know th- those have real value to it and the value is the community associated with it and then when you start to get into some of the sort of implications of nfts as far as acting as um you know getting you access to gated in real life events those are really interesting and looking at what nouns has done in terms of issuing one nft per day and each nft gives the nft holder one vote in DAO governance. That's really interesting. So I actually, you know, agree on the shitty JPEGs being scary, but NFTs as an asset class, I actually think are really interesting.
2: Yeah, I think that, I mean, the the takeaway is, and this is true of fungible or non-fungible tokens, tokens simply for the sake of tokens is just stupid. It's just nonsense. But I think tokens that have value and a, um, you know, like, again, something that accrues to you, and whether that be cash flow in like a protocol or whether that be to Sam's point about board Apes, um, like actual like you know club membership. And, and, and there are some actual things that come along with that. I think that's that's always the that's always the key to me is like, is this just like Paris Hilton launching a line of NFTs just for the fuck of it? Or is this um, sorry, I don't know if I should say that uh, <laughs> or, 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 or is this real? Is this, is this no, is I think this like I think she would do
3: it for the fuck of it.
2: Yeah, I probably probably she would, um, but like I I think that's the that's the key is like is this someone just trying to pump, um, you know, pump something up just for the sake of it, or is there actual underlying um, fair, rights and they're value? There's built NFTs, and lo and behold, she has launched autobiographical NFTs. So, yeah, see, I just try, i i tried to as quickly as possible come up with a, a celebrity that um <laughs> that that would, would be kind of an unassailable assumption, and so I'm I'm glad I nailed that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
3: no, I think I think she's getting into crypto M as well. Uh, okay, well, the, so I, there's, there's a bunch of other questions that I think we already answered. The only one, and we maybe already answered this, but I'll just ask it again: Is do you think there are um, activist investors that will um on purpose go and try and, I mean, maybe at a loss, like acquire a bunch of governance tokens. Like, I mean, you know, let's go back to our uni V3 example. Is there some activist investor out there that's trying to acquire a bunch of uni um, tokens so that they can um, change the the model of the governance and, and have it where the fees are paid out to them?
2: I mean, it's a good question. I think that activism, I mean, I, I there—I think you'll definitely see kind of activist investors in crypto to the extent that you haven't already. Um, I think that the there is going to be a there is a difference here though and I, I think this is um this is what i mean by that i think you, you could you could see kind of activist type investors doing a bit of a hostile takeover in some senses but like many DAOs are run by multi-sigs that there's actually kind of some some governance mechanisms to to disallow that to a degree it's almost the DAO version of a poison pill um so i think that there is a uh there are some some ways to get around that i also think the fact that you can kind of fork um so quickly the ip is is kind of scary as well. I think that you're gonna see, you know, I, I could see activist investors kind of taking over a DAO and trying to trying to enrich themselves in the DAO community kind of forking and just effectively launching a new token and, and and kind of running away with the value um and, and leaving the activist investors with nothing. I think that um activist investing in a traditional sense is a usually very um I don't want to say riskless, but it but it is generally happening with companies that are very mature and you're you're making um you know operational changes. It's it's not just like kind of a quick and dirty. Let me come in and just steal a bunch of value. So I uh, what I would what I would hope is that you'll see kind of the the advent of activist investors that are, um, you know, more more friendly, less hostile. They're they're coming in to be active, but in a, in a way to kind of help out rather than to simply try and make a quick dollar and uh, and take advantage of a situation. That 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 would be my hope. Maybe yeah. it's not you, but that would, that is my hope. Yeah,
1: no, 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 and I think that's right. And I think that if you look at the history of activist investing, like you know, when it first started, right, they were corporate raiders, and they were coming in buying equity in publicly traded companies, and a lot of times just liquidating the assets and 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 selling them off. And as activist investing um, uh, matured and progressed, you know, now in in publicly traded companies, activism is viewed as actually a lot more positive, and advocating for things like divestitures, to unlock value, or doing value accretive M&A. And I think that in terms of on-chain activism, specifically with DAOs, to your point, Jordan, around the IP being forkable and the community being a lot of times the value that drives drives the value of these, these projects, I think activism is actually a very good thing for this ecosystem. And I think that it's going to end up taking a much more collaborative approach than it did off-chain. And, you know, when we look at DAOs, we we kind of have like a Jekyll and Hyde perspective of it. Like on one hand, there is a lot of beauty to the DAO model. You know, anyone around the world can participate and meaningfully contribute to multi-billion dollar projects that if they were just publicly traded companies would never be able to do that. On the other hand, like I think anyone that's actively contributed to DAOs knows that, we're sort of inning one out one and that there is a long way to go in terms of fleshing out some of these organizational and voting frameworks to effectively govern in a decentralized manner and having uh, pools of capital that are actively nudging these projects towards a more efficient And value a creative form of governance is a good thing. And I think that if these activist investors go sort of uncollaborative and hostile, they're going to fail. I think the activist investors in the space that succeed will be the ones that actually try to create value, or at least I I hope that's where it goes.
0: Getting back to your, your point about cash flow, cash flow is king. How do you think about the different types of cash flow? Like, I imagine that must be a big factor in the analysis, whether a protocol like GMX is able to produce cash flow in ETH or in, in a, a token that's unrelated to its native token, right? Is that a big factor? And whereas like Uniswap, like if they were doing cash flow, that cash flow would come in the form of the tokens that are being swapped. So it would be a much more diversified stream. How do you how do you think about that? Like a native token cash flow versus a, a basket of tokens or or something that's kind of in between.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that it's it's funny. I actually I had this in one of my pieces that I wrote last, like maybe a couple months ago, but like I, I think cash flow is actually not even the right term for it anymore. It's more like asset flow in crypto because it, it isn't necessarily um, stables that you're earning. I think that, and, and I say in many cases, it's not stables that you're earning. I think that, I mean, the way that I think about it is like, is if, if, if anything that you're holding, I probably don't want to say anything, but most things that you're holding in treasury or that you're earning, um, that aren't your own native token. Um, it's a, it's effectively a cash-like asset. I think as long as there's a liquid market for it and there's a price that you can you can ascribe to it, um, and as long as the the the, the number that, that you are holding isn't such that you know you'd see absurd amounts of slippage if you were to, to, to liquidate. Um, from from my perspective, it's all it's all cash and cash-like. It's it's your your you know it, it, the, the only reason it, it, it's to me it's like no, no no difference than if I run an international company and I get paid fifty percent in us dollar and 50 percent in in, you know in in yuan like it just doesn't make a difference um it's all it's all value um generally speaking um assuming you know liquid markets yeah
3: agreed
0: all right so i think we are um getting towards the end but i want to while we're on just get kind of step back and get your general thoughts on the market i think earlier i kind of like said uh Spoke under the assumption that we are in a bear or entering a bear, and uh, one of you kind of pushed back a little bit on that or, or questioned that. Like, how do you think about where we are in the, in the market right now? Are there any um, protocols that you're actively investing in or, or working with? Like, do you, what uh what kind of opportunities are really exciting to you at this at this point? Yeah, no, it's it, it's a good question.
1: I, I I sort of I'll come at it from two perspectives. From a DAO perspective. There, I think, is this general sentiment that DAOs with undiversified treasuries should have diversified prior to this uh, you know, downturn because now is an inopportune time to sell governance tokens. I agree. It would have been better to sell governance tokens four months ago. I think, though, that it would be foolish, and it is foolish, of DAOs that take the perspective that we're not going to diversify our treasury until prices are back up, because there's nothing to say that prices won't continue to go down, especially for tokens that really only exist for governance, because there's really nothing underlying them. So I think that in preparation for a potential prolonged bear market with prices that could go down more materially, time is of the essence to get ETH. And more importantly, stables in the treasury. Because if you have stables in the treasury, you can continue to operate your business. You can be patient. You can invest. You can hire people. Um, so they they should do that. From an M&A standpoint, I think that we are going to see in this prolonged bear market the leaders in the space that are well-capitalized, the FTXs, as you've obviously already seen with, with SBF, and the... Uniswaps and the open seas, right? Bear markets are real opportunities for the well capitalized leaders to consolidate their position because they're going to be able to raise venture capital, right? In a bear market, it's hard for startups to raise capital because venture investors flock to safety. So they will continue to be able to raise capital. On the flip side, you're going to see A lot of these projects that have either not raised enough capital or have raised capital at such a significant valuation in the bull that they're never going to grow into it. And those projects are going to be looking for homes. So we think that a bear market presents a real opportunity for leaders to consolidate their position. So, kind of two key takeaways. One, DAOs should continue to diversify their treasury and not assume that prices are not going to go down further. And we see that leaders are going to execute an M&A strategy to take advantage of their relative position of power.
2: Yeah, uh, not a whole lot to add from, from me. I think that the, the key when it comes to any any bear market, um, you, you never know when it's going to end. You never know when the bottom is. That's just the reality. And when it tells you that they do is lying. So the the, the key to any bear market is survival. Um, I think it's why people flock to fundamentals. It's why they think about cash flow. Um, it's also why, to Sam's point, um, it, it, it's never as simple as, well, our, our price was you know, it was $8 or $40 or whatever, six months ago that it's, it's irrelevant. Um, uh, it's a sunk cost. So you start to start to think about, okay, well, um, you know, let's, let's model out the scenarios. Let's think about what our operating expenses are. Let's cut where we can and let's, let's survive and and hold out as long as we can. Cause if we've built something real, then that will accrue value over time. So that's uh, those are my two cents.
3: That's awesome. Um, I mean, that's what, you know, foot guns, um, uh, well, okay. Let me just, let's just backtrack a little bit. I think, I think Wasabi and I are activist investors. I think Wasabi has called me out publicly of having the best Dow hack of, of all time by changing my name to $1,500 Badger. Um, I then joined the Dow and um, spent a lot of my time. I mean, you know, many, uh, you know, losing sleep over trying to figure out how to, um, you know, make Badger the best it can be. And um, Wasabi has done similar things and then we also have done the same thing with foot guns now um and i've sort of dreamed of foot guns as being sort of the playground to learn all of these things for for everyone right and uh, we have a token we have i think fifteen thousand dollars of liquidity backing that token um we have cash flow i just had to let people go because of our you know, the bear market, um, the intern had to take a hit, you know, all these things. Um, it's a, I, you know, it's a great learning experience. I'm really happy that we bumped into you guys. I want to continue this relationship. I hope foot guns, uh, readers and listeners go and read your guys' stuff. I hope your guys' readers come and, uh, read our stuff. Um, yeah, I think, I think, the, the biggest takeaway here is that like the bear market is like extreme learning experience. Get yourself in a position where you can sustain, you know, I, I let's just imagine three years of a crypto bear market. Um, and yeah, t- like huge opportunities ahead, I think.
1: Yeah, no. And, and we really appreciate you, you having us on the pod. You know, really glad we ran into each other as well. And it's great to find like-minded folks in the community you know there's 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 so much talent in this space particularly around product and engineering and it's it's great to see um folks coming in and 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 trying to professionalize some of the sort of less sexy things around finance and operations because that is a key piece of the puzzle as the space emerges so looking forward to you know continuing the relationship and finding ways to work together awesome good stuff guys thanks for having us on yeah, we, uh, we, one of our favorite, uh, one of our favorite uh, characters in all of literature is Matt I. Moody, and his first name is Alastor. And, um, you know, he preaches constant vigilance. And, you know, there's a lot of symbolism to the all-seeing eye. And um, we want to take
0: some of that same vigilance and thoughtfulness to crypto. All right there you have it sam and jordan thank you so much for coming on today to talk crypto MA. and the substack again is alastor a-l-a-s-t-o-r thanks again for coming on and hopefully we can do this again soon
1: yeah sounds great
0: awesome thanks guys thanks guys